God's love is something that we sing about, something that we no doubt have heard preached about countless times. But it's good to be reminded, and the best way to be reminded is by looking at the cross of Christ. Title of the sermon this morning, What is Your Worth to God? Join me, if you will, looking at Isaiah 53, and we'll read just one verse, verse 10. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship you in song. We thank you for the pleasure, the privilege we have of being assembled in your presence in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your matchless, immeasurable love that has been demonstrated to us in the person, in the life, death, suffering, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we hear your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, help us to hear, to understand, and may your word be ever productive in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what is your worth to God? If you were born any time after 1977 or perhaps had children after 1977, you may be familiar with what they call the uh, pediatric percentile chart. I was not familiar with this until after the birth of my first son, William. But uh, whenever he went for his checkup, my wife comes home with something that's stapled together. It's two pieces of paper. On the front, there's a chart, and it shows his percentile. Uh, it shows how he measures up, so to speak, compared to other children of his same age. Even though you may not be familiar with that, when I say that we are constantly measuring ourselves against other things in life, other standards, you will be familiar with that. It's something that we do incessantly. We measure ourselves by how many friends we have on Facebook or by how many followers are following us on Twitter. We impose some standard of measurement that helps us subconsciously, even if it's not consciously, to determine our value, to determine our worth. But we're settling for far too less. And when we look at Scripture, in fact, the text that I just read to you this morning occurs in a chapter which is known as one of the servant songs, the servant psalms. And it's because Isaiah in his prophecy is delivering to the people of God a message about the coming servant, the one whom God himself will send, who will be God incarnate, who will be the Son of God, who will be the very manifestation not only of God among us, which is also a a motif, it's a theme, it's a, a, a title of assurance that we have here in the book of Isaiah, but also a manifestation of God's love for us. And it's this manifestation ultimately that will define our worth to God. And so we're going to look at this one verse, and I trust that Isaiah 53 is a familiar chapter to you. If not, I encourage you to go home after the service this morning to read it yourself, to meditate on it, prayerfully think about it, because it is one of the most, what I consider to be one of the most powerful uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, 
as it relates to the coming of Christ, the passion of Christ. But we're going to look at three things this morning. Uh, first, we are going to see the value, our value, from what is lost in this verse, what the Bible says was lost. Secondly, we'll look at our value from what was gained. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at a new standard of self-worth. So let's go ahead and dive into the text and look at the value from what was lost. God took pleasure in crushing his son. Now, I want to, just for a moment, and bear with me, I want to get a little technical about this particular verse because I think uh, by doing so, it's well worth our time. But if you look at the first part of verse 10 in the ESV, which is the version I just read, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The word there in Hebrew for will is translated different ways with different versions. I personally, looking at the Hebrew and looking at the various uh, commentaries that I've consulted, uh, I like the King James Version translation of this verse the best because I think it best conveys the original Hebrew meaning. The King James Version translates this verse as, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now the difference between it being God's will and actually pleasing the Lord is quite significant. But the Hebrew word that's used there is, is used throughout Scripture uh, quite often to convey pleasure, taking pleasure in something, not simply doing what you desire, but rather taking pleasure in what is done. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Psalms chapter 40, verse 8, when the psalmist said, I delight to do your will, O God. He wasn't just saying, I desire or I want to do your will or I will to do your will, but he was saying, I delight. And the word that is translated there is delight is the same Hebrew word, which is here translated in the ESV as will. But the, the meaning which is behind the original Hebrew, which is that it pleased God. God took pleasure in crushing his son. Whenever we first read that, at first it may seem somewhat offensive because after all, doesn't it make God seem masochistic or, or sadistic if he took pleasure in crushing his son? But what does this particular passage convey, not only about redemptive history, about what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ, but what does it convey about our self-worth? And that is our focus in the sermon this morning. What does it communicate about our value to God. This verse states emphatically that if God delights in crushing his son, there must be something worse than such crushing that makes it tolerable. What is that? What could possibly be worse in the annals of eternity to God than the crushing of his very own son? Theologians have seen in this particular verse a depiction of what they call the covenant of redemption. It's the eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son before the creation of the world in which the plan of redemption was foreordained and decided and covenantally and mutually agreed upon between the sacred members of the divine trinity. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 refers to this when Paul, writing to Timothy, says that he saved us, God saved us, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That's an explanation of what is known as the covenant of redemption, that before time began, God knew you in Christ, and God ordained that you and I would be here this morning. 
The triune God is mutually and covenantally bound to the redemptive work of God in Christ. And Christ is the only means of redemption between the estranged God and man. But God is not masochistic. Again, uh, masochism is a psychiatric condition in which uh, gratification is received or derived from suffering, physical pain, or humiliation. God is not that. That is not what is being conveyed in this verse. Neither is God sadistic. Again, a sadist is one who finds pleasure in causing pain to others. Instead, we read that the pleasure of the crushing of the Son of God derives from the glorification of the Father and the Son. We see this because in the night of Christ's passion, the night when he would take his cross and bear it to Calvary, John chapter 17, verse 1, he declares in his final high priestly prayer to the Father, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So in the suffering of Christ, that's ultimately the pleasure that God took in crushing his son because thereby the suffering of Christ accomplished something that in the mind of God and even in our finite mind is incomprehensible, even though it's ordained from eternity, and that is that God desires to be with us forever. Now this is the central message of scripture. If you're familiar with the so covenantal theme from Genesis to Revelation, you know ultimately that redemptive history can be summarized in one phrase, and that is that God desires to be among us, for us to be his people, and for he to be our God. That's his fundamental longing. And so whenever we talk about God, and we talk about God in a personal sense, not in an abstract sense as if uh, God in his, in his omnipotence cannot truly be touched by want and by desire and by need because he is self-sufficient in and of himself, but yet what we see bleeding through the pages of Scripture is a God who is passionate about you, a God who longs for you, a God who would indeed take pleasure in the crushing of his Son so that you and I might be re reconciled to him. Well, what does this mean for our suffering? Let me draw from this first point some application. Does God delight in our suffering? Does, does God take the same type of pleasure in our suffering? Well, in order for us to answer this, we need to realize that Christ was no ordinary man. He was and is the substitute for you and I. He was the archetype of the new man. And so God does not delight in our suffering in the same manner as he delighted in that of his son. Because for Christ to suffer, ultimately, was for him to suffer on our behalf. Christ is the only man who's ever lived for whom death was an injustice. Because after all, death is the result of sin. You and I deserve death. And in some sense, we deserve suffering. Because suffering derives from our disobedience. If it had not been for man's disobedience in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, then suffering and death would not have been imposed, would not have been part of the human experience. So God does not delight in our suffering in the same manner as he does the suffering of his son because it is not salvific, meaning that there's nothing that will save us when we suffer. However, this does not mean that our suffering is meaningless or pointless. And so we are to take comfort as the Apostle Paul instructs us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, when he says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
So yes, our suffering has meaning, even if it is not the same meaning as that of Christ. Well, let's look at the second point, which is the value from what was gained. We see the value from what was lost, that God took pleasure in the crushing of his son. He put him to grief. Now let's see the value of what was gained. The suffering of Christ was not pointless. The end of of the very first part of the first verse says that God has put him to grief. And another way of translating that passage is that he, God the Father, has made him, God the Son, sick. I believe this statement refers back to verse 5, which says that Christ was wounded so that we could be healed. Ultimately, that by his wounds we are healed. In other words, mankind is dead with a sickness that we brought on ourselves. It's a self-inflicted sickness. But Christ, the only man who's ever lived undeserving of death, took our affliction upon himself, allowing those for whom he died to be saved and to be healed. Now, there's a determinative statement here that explains how Christ, in his suffering, ultimately glorifies the Father. Because the next phrase says that when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The guilt offering, which uh, if you're familiar with the Pentateuch, with the first five books of the Old Testament, you know that the guilt offering was one of the offerings. It's a redemptive motif. It's a redemptive offering, but it's one of the offerings of the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 14 through chapter 6, verse 7. It's also known as the reparation offering or uh, the restoration offering. It's an offering that focuses on sin as that which betrays. And I won't go into all the detail today, but basically in the book of Leviticus, holiness is defined as separation to God, that we or an article is holy if it is set apart for God, for use in God's service. And so ultimately when God requires us to be holy, he's requiring us to be holy in that sense. And so there are various offerings mentioned throughout the Old Testament. One is the sin offering, uh, but one in particular is the guilt offering. And the guilt offering is significant because it focuses on redeeming something that was lost, restoring that which was set aside originally for the holy purposes of God, but has become desecrated because of the sinfulness of man or some ritual impurity, restoring that which was lost. And so the writer here of Isaiah, Isaiah himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that Christ is our guilt offering. Christ ultimately is the one who dies in our stead. He took our place in judgment so that we might become the friends of God, who ultimately was the offended party. Paul tells us that this offering, this death, this suffering, is a demonstration in and of itself of the love that God has for you and I. We see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says that God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God demonstrates our worth. As believers, he demonstrates our worth to him in the lengths to which he's willing to go to reconcile us to him. And the lengths to which he's willing to go is none less than the crushing of his son. Now, one thing that the death and, and suffering of Christ is not is a sentimental gesture. I was raised in a church 
I heard the gospel preached from a very young age, but I can remember thinking that the death of Christ, I had a hard time distinguishing the value of the death of Christ from countless other deaths of people who die for good causes. It was not until I truly understood that the death of Christ was a substitutionary death, that he died in my place, that I saw that it was different. And I think that even today in our own age, many are tempted to compare the sacrifice of Christ with the altruistic motives of countless others who lay down their lives on a daily basis for a noble cause. But there's one very important difference. Even though such altruistic sacrifices are inspiring, the death of any other individual, though premature it may be, from our reckoning, from our standpoint, is not undeserved. Because every human being who's ever lived is deserving of death, save one that is Jesus Christ. Therefore, Christ is the only person who's ever lived for whom the sentence of death was and would have been unjust. Christ's death was not simply for a cause. To lay down one's life for a cause, to have died for a cause, would have made him a martyr, but not a savior. Christ didn't die just to make a point to the Roman Empire. He died in order to reconcile us to God. He died for me. He did, died for you. He died in my place. He died so that death and the death of all who are in him, all the elect throughout all ages for all time, ultimately might be a simple transition from glory to resurrection. Now, let me make a point of application here and say that this brings comfort to me. Immense comfort. And I'll tell you why. Because I am a sinner. Because I am broken. Because I struggle and I fail. Because there are days when... The dark cloud of depression knocks at my door and there are days when, it, when I give in to it. This is comforting to me because there are times when I find myself flat on my face. And I know that to will, as Paul says, is present. I want to do that which is good. But I, I, I fell, I stumble, and I fall. So why is this comforting to me? It's comforting to know that Christ didn't just die for a cause. And it's comforting to know that when Christ died, he just didn't die for every sin I've created in the, or that I've committed in the past. But when Christ died, he died for every sin I ever will commit, past, present, and future. That when Christ died, he died as my substitute. And so the suffering of Christ, what is gained in the, in the suffering of Christ is the realization that I can be comforted when I'm depressed because my brightest days are yet to come. It brings comfort to me when I'm lonely because he who died for me is always with me. It brings comfort to me when I've sinned and I've fallen on my face because the one who died for me intercedes for me before God against whom I've sinned. This brings comfort, immense comfort, both in life and in death, knowing that when it comes time to cross the chilly waters of Jordan, that I will not do it alone, but Christ will be with me. Knowing that every step I take, that I am not my own, but whether in life or in death, I belong body and soul to Christ. This brings comfort. Knowing. It brings comfort not only to you and I, but for saints throughout all the ages. Knowing that our seemingly worm-like existence is valued 
and this is going to blow your mind, it's valued by the very life of the Son of God. We measure ourselves not against superior standards of measurement. We measure ourselves against far inferior standards of self-worth. Because our dignity, our sense of value does not derive from anything that we're able to accomplish in this life, but rather from what has already been accomplished on our behalf nearly 2,000 years ago, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of a crushed and wounded Savior, the crushing of which God himself took pleasure in for your sake, because you and I are valuable to him. Now, the third point that I want to make from this text is that ultimately what is communicated in this beautiful verse, which honestly, I, when I was preparing for the sermon, I didn't know where to stop and where to start because you could preach the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 and the gospel was saturated in every verse. But just focusing on verse 10, I believe what is the very heart of this passage is something that ultimately blows my mind every time I think about it, and that is this, that a new standard of self-worth for the Christian is the realization that you and I, the redeemed, are Christ's reward. Now, think about that for a minute. What was the reward? As we just sang in the words of the song, why should I gain from his reward? And we'll sing it again here in just a moment. You and I, reconciled to God, is the reward for Christ. This is the heart of the passage. We see here in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Why did Christ consider his suffering, his passion, to glorify the Father? Why was that something that he looked forward to, as we'll see here in just a moment, according to Hebrews chapter 2? Why was it something that he looked to with joy? Because of you and I. We are the reward of Christ. So the heart of this passage is conveyed in this, not even a sentence, but in this fragment, he shall see his offspring. The ultimate value of the church of Christ is that we are the offspring of of Christ. We are the reward of his suffering. Hebrews says it like this. The writer of Hebrews said that we are to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did he do it? For the joy that was set before him. I believe the joy that was set before him was more than simply sharing the Father's glory. Because as we saw in chapter 17 of John's gospel, that glory he shared with the Father from the creation of the world. So what is the glory? What is the joy that is set before Christ? So that he himself would see the cross as a pleasure. Ultimately, it is his church redeemed. We see this same message in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, when Paul says that he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And again, Paul continues this theme when he's teaching about the most intimate of human relationships, marriage. In Ephesians chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, when Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, 
And then he gives as an example, he says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The value of a believer derives not only from the fact that God so loved the world he sent his only begotten son, but also from the fact that you and I as the redeemed of Christ are his reward. That what we shall be is far in superior to what we appear to be now. John tells us that later in his first epistle when he says, but beloved, when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. And that is ultimately the aspirations of the work of sanctification, the end product of our justification that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So if the church redeemed is Christ's reward, then what does that communicate about your worth to God? Quite frankly, it means that you're worth far more than you probably ever imagined. C.S. Lewis, the renowned Christian author, in his book, Way to Glory, says it like this, and I I think it says it beautifully. He said, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He goes on to say, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So allow me to make one final point of application. What does it matter if you and I are worth more than we thought? What does it matter if in the economy, in the estimation of eternity, we are truly worth, we are valued at the very life of Christ? What does it matter? What is the difference? Well, again, to point to Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that Christ is doing something with you and I. He's redeemed us. We are his. We are his bride. But he's also changing us. He's changing us to reflect his image, to reflect his glory. You see, all mankind ultimately derives value from one fundamental characteristic, And that is that every human being who's ever walked on the face of this earth was created in the image of God. Therefore, every human being is an image bearer of God. But what happened in Genesis 3 was that that image was fragmented. It was fractured. It was broken. And so instead of simply being recreated in that image, Paul teaches us that we are being recreated into the image of Christ. So that when we stand in the presence of God, Christ presents us to the Father. And he does so, I can only imagine, with pride, knowing that he died for us and that we are his reward. So the fact that we are Christ's reward means that we cannot live in any way that we please. For we've been purchased by his blood and we belong body and soul to him. We all live outwardly from a sense of self-worth. This is something that's fundamentally true of every human being. 
And I was reminded of this on a very personal level this past week. My, uh, some of you know that my mother uh, sewed the childhood home that I was raised in. She lived in for 35 years. And I went this past week for a couple of days and helped her move from the house to a senior apartment. And some of you can relate to the fact that, um, well, some of you can relate to growing up poor. I grew up very poor. The community I, I grew up in was very poor. In fact, I'd, I'd, those who made 12000 a year were considered wealthy. The house catty corner from my mother's, I remember when I was in my late teens. The, the back end of it was blown out because the owner decided to create a meth lab uh, in, the, in the kitchen, and it blew up on him. Driving down the road, you're surrounded by houses that bespeak of not only limited resources, but I suggest something even more expressive of our fallen nature, and that is a limited sense of self-worth. Poverty, in many ways, is more a mentality than it is a, a lack of resources. And so I'm reminded, though, of the fact when I drive through the neighborhood, when I see the places I grew up and I remembered my childhood and many, many happy memories, many that were not so happy, I'm reminded of the difference it makes when your self-worth is not based on what you do not have, but is based on who God says you are. And how do we know who God says we are? Because he has written a love letter, loud and clear, in the person of Jesus Christ, suspended between heaven and earth, the Savior of the world who died for you, whose life was esteemed, crushed, broken in the Father's hand, that you and I might be reconciled to him. So our worth is not determined by how we measure up against people of our same age and stage. Our worth is not determined by what you and I can accomplish. Our worth is not determined by whether our talent is as good as the next person's. Our worth is not determined by whether we live what we preach. Our worth is determined by one thing. And that is that God loves us enough that he spared no expense. And he gave his only son. And Christ died as a substitute in our place. So that ultimately we could be reconciled to a God with whom we were enemies. Not simply estranged, but enemies. Enemies. That is the greatest manifestation of your self-worth. And I would challenge you that if you are basing your value in the eyes of God on anything other than that, that it is built on something far inferior to the truth. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you indeed for your love. We thank you that your love for us is revealed in the person of Christ in the suffering of Christ, in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior who died for me. And Father, we pray this morning as we continue worship. We pray as we think about our week. We pray 
as we are in various places, perhaps a few of us are in the pit of despair, some of us are struggling with sin and guilt, some of us are being judged and misjudged by others. And we are prone to look at that and fear. But Father, I ask that you would keep our attention on nothing less this morning than who you say we are to you as manifested, as demonstrated in the death of our Savior. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you live. You live ever to make intercession for us, that through your death, you've brought life to those whom you've chosen. And we rejoice in that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.